This is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about people from all walks of life. Our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, brings us the story of a professional prankster whose favorite target was the national news media. Today's liberated woman can be summed up or epitomized as a braless vegetarian with hairy legs and armpits. <laughs> and that's the one and only Alan Abel, prankster, hoaxer, hacker, and proud purveyor of fake news. He was responsible for duping the media into fabricated press conferences, faking his own death, and starting media campaigns for imaginary organizations like CINA, the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals. <laughs> we'll get to that later, but first, you really got to hear this guy in action. Posing as a man named Jim Rogers, media hoaxer Alan Abel founded a fake organization called Citizens Against Breastfeeding that sought to abolish this supposed act of immorality. He claimed that breastfeeding would lead to drug use later in life. Here he is on live television, arguing on behalf of a totally made-up topic. Should women be allowed to breastfeed in public? One of our guests tonight says absolutely not. Jim Rogers is the East Coast spokesman for Citizens Against Breastfeeding. And Leslie Burby is the vice president of ProMom. So Jim, let's start with you. What's wrong with breastfeeding in the open? Is it too sexy? Our position is, after 22,000 respondents have been interviewed using primarily the Minnesota Monophasic Personality Profile, many youngsters grow up to become, shall we say, uh, antisocial because of the long breastfeeding period when they are addicted to the mother's breast and they have this oral gratification need that manifests itself into smoking, drinking, and in one instance, Monica Lewinsky, who was breastfed until she was four years old. Leslie, do you have uh, any reaction to what Jim is saying? Well, with due respect, um, had I known that Jim was going to be on the show, I don't know that I would have agreed to appear. And here's another example of the kind of shenanigans that Alan Abel could execute. He managed to gather all of the news people in New York City to a fake press conference about a fictitious lottery winner. They threw dollar bills out of a hotel window, served champagne, and even hired an actress to play the part of the supposed $35 million prize winner. Every TV news station and newspaper in the city showed up and covered the faux news in full detail. Her name is Charlie Taylor, and tonight the 30-year-old cosmetologist is the single winner of the $35 million lottery jackpot. Lucky Charlie showed News 4's Howard Thompson a photocopy of that winning ticket. 30-year-old Charlie Taylor has probably given her last manicure and facial. The Dobbs Ferry cosmetologist is the lucky winner of last night's $35 million lottery. Still giddy, the reality of her new life has not yet set in. <laughs> I flipped. I freaked. It's great. Yeah. It's great. Was there any particular method that you chose in, in picking those particular numbers? No, I... I, <laughs> I it's a funny thing, I had a dream. You had a dream about the numbers? Yeah, yeah, I had a dream. So that's what made me pick the numbers. The news media didn't even catch on to the fact that the entire event was a ruse until days later, forcing reporters all over the country to make retractions on the air. The event even made it as far as the desk of Tom Brokaw. Everyone loves a winner, of course. By now, lotteries are old news in this country, but big winners, well, they still attract a lot of attention. And when the news got out that a New York woman had won a fortune in the state lottery, reporters were all over the story. And what a story it was. 
1987, Alan Abel created a fake Iranian arms merchant who supposedly made $6 million in a commission on the sale of U.S. arms to Iran. He then arranged the press conference that was attended by all of the major media. The story was never questioned, and it wound up on the national news. And in the rush of events in the Iran scandal, a strange story in New York today. I received $6 million for my participation in uh, this affair. Mehdi Baramani. He says he's an Iranian who made $6 million on the sale of U.S. arms to Iran, and he wants now to give it back. So far, we've only heard three of Alan Abel's elaborate media hoaxes. There are many others to get to, and some that we just can't because we don't have enough time. It's a testament to just how many hoaxes he pulled off over the years. He is relentless. The amount of time, energy, and dedication that it takes to pull off just one of these stunts is remarkable. It's one thing to book a fake interview on the news. Just about anybody could do it. It takes a completely different breed of animal altogether to book the interview, show up in person, look down the barrel of a TV camera, and say that you think that the mother-child bond during breastfeeding is somehow an immoral act. This guy is on a whole nother level. But why does he do it? His years of tireless dedication to his craft of tomfoolery certainly hasn't made him rich or famous. Why would he go through such lengths just to get one over on the media? While literally marching to the beat of his own drum on a street corner, Alan Abel himself tells us why he does what he does. I like to think of my hoaxes as having a message. And I also feel kind of comfortable with the idea that it's an opportunity for me to perform. I'm a performer, I'm a writer, I direct, I do a lot of things, but the opportunities to perform are limited. The talk shows, the radio, television, newspaper interviews, it's a conduit to my audience, the public. Here's another one of the many media stunts that got Alan national news attention. He conned the national media into believing a story about a kid selling off body parts to pay off his student debts. It is a decision most of us probably could not even imagine, selling a lung or a kidney for money to live. A man so desperate, so in need of money, that he's putting his body parts up for sale. He says he's a college graduate who's been out of work over a year, is 15 grand in debt, and is about to be kicked out of his apartment. I was just going over trying to figure out what do I have of value. I don't have a car. And out of all the things I own, this is pretty much the most valuable thing I have. And you think your reasoning is that you own these organs and therefore you should be allowed to sell them? Well, I think so. Tom won't give out his last name or any other information because he says what he's doing is illegal. Well, that's what I've been told, but I might be able to work around it by doing it as a non-returnable loan. And again, days later, journalists all over the country began to realize that they'd been had. That 28-year-old who offered to sell a kidney or lung for $25,000 had no intention of parting with either. It turns out he was an actor just playing a part. A veteran media hoaxer, Alan Abel, has owned up to orchestrating the scam. And that's just the tip of the iceberg in the prankster story of Alan Abel. When we come back, some of his best hoaxes ever perpetuated on live TV. Don't go anywhere. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of professional prankster Alan Abel. Let's get back to Jesse. Newspaper columnist Phil Reisman remembers his early days in journalism and his dealings with Alan Abel. One day, he took the bait by accident after finding a sensational advertisement in the back of a newspaper. Alan Abel was my first real lesson in journalism. I can tell you that. I was in in desperate uh, need and want of a byline. I wanted to get a story in this paper. And I remember, I don't know how how I uh, actually found out about this. I might have been just perusing the white pages of the Manhattan phone book. Just by accident, I found an entry called Omar's School for Beggars. Now I have with me this evening Mr. Omar. Omar is the founder and owner of Omar's School for Begging, which is an institution that teaches the fine art of creative panhandling which I thought, this is unbelievable. And this is like in the 70s when people were really out of work and it was like, you know, the city was, uh, New York City was in a drop-dead mode from Gerald Ford, you know. Um, there are homeless people everywhere. So I thought, well, this, this is really amazing and, and probably fits into what's going on right now in the world. But there's no help for people in this position. There's a broad spectrum of America that is faced with this problem. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of men who have served loyally for years and years to their companies, been put out on the streets. They're garbage. I bought it hook, line, and sinker, and I wrote the story about this guy who runs his panhandler school. Here is Omar. Welcome. Years went by, and I began to realize that he was pulling this hoax over and over and over again to other people. And I, I started saving clips, and I had built up a file on Abel. I said, this guy, i got to watch for him. It was incredible how he repeated the same hoaxes over and over and over again, even though they would be exposed, and then he would do it again. Perhaps Alan Abel's most famous media hoax over the years was his campaign to put clothes on animals through the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals, or Senna for short. In 1959, Abel wrote a satirical story about this imaginary organization for the Saturday Evening Post, but editors rejected it. So he then transformed his story into a series of press releases that garnered media attention. The group used the language and rhetoric of moralists for the aim of clothing naked animals, including pets, barnyard animals, and large wildlife. Slogans such as decency today means morality tomorrow and a nude horse is a rude horse were offered. Abel persuaded the actor Buck Henry to play the group president, G. Clifford Prout. Abel played the group vice president. The Society to Clothe All Naked Animals for the Sake of Decency, or CINA, S-I-N-A. CINA received so much press. It was much ado about nothing in my own mind. But it, it's kind of like, uh, maybe this is not a good analogy, but it's kind of like someone who drops a match and suddenly you have a, a, a forest fire. A flood tide of filth is engulfing our country in the form of newsstand obscenity. It was a, a commentary on censorship. If we're going to censor books in the library that might be, seem salacious, then uh, why don't we uh, censor those animals who are out there being naked? And that's what allegorical satire is all about. But it was very well done, too well done, because it obscured that message. I don't think anybody got it. Promoting Cinna gave me the understanding that with very little funds and uh, very few props with a straight face you can convince America and the media that you have this 
crazy movement. Apparently, a lot of people failed to realize that this was all just a bunch of nonsense. Some subscribed to the newsletter, opening local chapters all over the country of moral activists who thought it was a good idea to put pants on a horse. <laughs> Not everyone caught on to the joke. I like to think that poking fun uh, at something is really just a cover. It's just the, the skin, uh, the surface. Underneath that surface or skin is a message, a moral message. In the case of Cinna, right away it's contradictory because we're for it in the title, and yet I was against it. So that's a clue that there must be something wrong here, that it could be a joke. Another one of Alan's bizarre pranks on national TV was when he paid a group of actors to attend a taping of the Phil Donahue show back in the 1980s and pretend to faint. It was a great sight that night on the news because the headlines in the newspapers were Audience Flees Donahue Show. It was live television with a fastly fading studio audience for the Phil Donahue Show today. Combination of the lights, the possible anxiety of uh, the t live television, and the heat uh, caused one woman to faint. And then four others fainted. People started to figure out who Alan Abel was and some weren't too happy about his trickery. Messages for whoever is running this organization. Your organization is considered born on the shores of ignorance, and your group is fed by the spoon of stupidity. You guys are the biggest bunch of sick morons I have ever met in my life. Um, I think all of you need long psychotherapy. Bye. Some people were sick of it, and the news media was beginning to get tired of it as well. At that time, in the early 70s, the media was more considerate of practical joking and utilizing the media as a conduit to the public. But as the years went by and the competition got greater, the news got more serious and the pressure was on to come up with hard news factually, quickly, there was no time to fool around or play around. So the breed of reporters who came out of the 80s and 90s were guys and gals who just uh, didn't want to have fun. No way. With the people in the media getting wiser, a guy like Alan Abel just doesn't stop. He went on to act in daytime TV shows like Mari Pulvich and Jerry Springer at the time. In the documentary about his life called Cain Raising Abel, Alan's own daughter narrates what life was like living with a guy like this for a father. Can you imagine being this trickster's kid? You are trying to tell me that that child has eaten nothing but nothing, hair? One time he even dragged me along on one of his appearances. He was posing as Dr. Herbert Strauss, a firm believer in the notion that people should consume human hair because it's high in protein. Jennifer, do, would you like a hair sandwich? He tried to get me to eat a hair sandwich on camera, but I refused, even though we had been rehearsing it for weeks, and I knew there was hair on only one side of the bun. It was actually my mom's hair inside the sandwich. What does it hair? taste like? Uh, it just, just it tastes uh, a bit like uh, a hamburger. Even though my dad enjoyed doing these types of TV appearances, he wanted to keep pulling off his own pranks. This is a hair pie made from a dark-haired woman. But it wasn't always about national attention and elaborate hoaxes that kept Alan's wheels turning. There's a video of him online on local cable access TV for over 20 minutes going on about the history of the world as told through the snare drum. Here's a small piece of that speech. My name is Alan Abel, and I would like to tell you about the relationship of the snare drum and its effect on civilization today. Many people have asked, where did this drum really come from? Well, last year, an archaeologist friend of mine went to Egypt, and after poking among the pyramids for over six months, he discovered that this particular drum actually came from a music store 
in Greenwich, Connecticut. However, the drum does date back to the year 4000 BM, which of course is before Madonna. Now in that year, we had cavemen who used to use the drum as a means of communication. They would first of all cut down a tree, hollow out the log, cover the end of that log with the skins of neighboring tribes, and then beat on the end of that log with an arm or a leg from one of the tribes. And of course, we developed our first log rhythms that way. Now, we would have one tribe talk to another tribe by using a drum book. They actually had a drum book. For example, let's have a woman in a tribe over here who wants to talk to a lady in a tribe three miles away. She would look up her number in the drum book and it might be three, two, one, roll twice. So she would send the number. Her friend would hear the, the number on the drum and know that she was wanted on the drum. On January 2nd of 1980, both the New York Times and the New York Daily News reported the death of the famous media hoaxer, Alan Abel. The Times provided a flattering account of his career. Unfortunately for these papers, there was a small problem. Abel was very much alive. The newspapers learned this when Abel held a press conference the next day in which he revealed that the news of his death was a hoax engineered by himself and a team of 12 accomplices, some of whom had sent the false story to the media while others had acted to confirm it. Abel explained that he perpetuated the hoax for publicity specifically to publicize the fact that he was a professional hoaxer. And that, my friends, is the one and only Alan Abel. Marching to the beat of his own drum, He's dedicated his entire life to pranks, hoaxes, and fake news, doing it better than perhaps anyone else, just for kicks. I can't think of a better way to spend a life well-lived. Can you? VD has reached epidemic proportions. Ten cents is a small price indeed to pay for this sanitary sanctuary, a private John in public. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for another On Leadership story, this time with the first Marine to ever be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Peter Pace. The third of four kids of an Italian immigrant Brooklyn, New York family, Pace graduated from the Naval Academy in 1967 and soon found himself leading a platoon in the middle of the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War. After a distinguished career in and out of combat, Pace retired in 2007 as a four-star general. He then did what so many great old Marines do. They try to help the young ones coming up. We're going to listen in on General Pace's talk with third-class midshipmen at the Naval Academy. These are 19-year-olds, 
But Annapolis, along with other service academies and some standout civilian universities like Hillsdale, takes the moral formation of its students very seriously. And so naturally, Pace began his talk with the young midshipmen with a story from back when he was in their shoes. But when I was a third-class mid, don't know why, but both of my roommates decided they were going to start smoking pipes. I watched this for about a week, and I wanted to be part of the family, so to speak. So I went down to the mid-store, bought a pipe. It was $5.50. I paid for it with a $10 bill. There were no credit cards back then. <laughs> I went back to my room, and I sat there for about two or three days looking at this pipe and saying to myself, why are you doing this? You don't even like to smoke. So I took the pipe back down to the mid-store and was going to trade it back in for my $10 bill, right? I don't remember all the specifics. I should, but I don't. But for some reason, while I was down there, I decided I'm going to keep it. So I go back to my room. Two days later, I get called down to the commandant's office. And he says to me, you have been accused of stealing a pipe from the midshipman store. Because there were no receipts, because we didn't do business then like we do now, I had no way of proving that yes, I had been in the midshipman store with the pipe in my hand. Yes, I had walked out without paying for it that day, but I had paid for it three days before. I was, I mean, my stomach was a wreck. My brother was in the class of 65. And he came to me and he said, Pete, I love you. If you stole that pipe, you have got to stand up and admit it. And if you did not steal that pipe, then you need to stand your ground, and I'm with you. I really do not know how this thing might have turned out, except for what happened the day after. One of my classmates was a guy named John Griffin. He was our third-class company commander. And John saw that I was upset and said to me, what's the problem? And I told John that I'd been accused of stealing a pipe. And he said, you mean the pipe that I saw you with? And he mentioned the day before the day that I supposedly stole it. And I said, John, are you sure that you saw me with that? And he said, I'm positive because we were doing this. We were studying for this, this test, that, 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 that. John went and saw the company officer, told them what he had seen. I was exonerated. But there was about a month of my life where I really thought that I was going to be shown the door because I had no way to prove myself. Pace then carried the lessons from that month through to the rest of his career. As a result of that, quite honestly, I've been more lenient on more people than I should have been. 
every time some PFC stood in front of me and swarping down it, he didn't do whatever it was he didn't do, I tended to believe him. I'm not sorry I did. Because when you're a leader, you can always show some leniency. If they deserve to be shown the leniency, you'll feel great about having been the leader who gave it to them. And if they don't deserve to be shown the leniency, they'll show themselves again, and you can kill them then. And great advice. After graduating from the academy, Pace quickly found himself leading a platoon of Marines in Vietnam in the middle of the Tet Offensive. And there, something else happened that also shaped his career and his life. We were on patrol. And an incredible young Marine named Lance Corporal Guido Farinaro from Bethpage, New York, 19 years old, born in Italy, naturalized citizen of the U.S., was shot by a sniper right in the chest. I was holding Guido when he died, and I was absolutely enraged. Now, I had heard all the stories about people supposedly cutting off ears and doing things in combat that you know, weren't right, and I knew, I knew I would never allow myself or any of my Marines to ever do anything immoral or unethical in combat. When Guido died, I was enraged. I called in an artillery strike on the village from which the sniper round was fired. It takes a little while between the time you call for fire and you get it. During that time, my platoon sergeant, who was an E-5 sergeant, but he was on his second tour in Vietnam, didn't say anything to me. He just looked at me. I could tell by the way he was looking at me that what I was doing was wrong. I mean, it just confirmed what I already knew in my heart of hearts. I called off the artillery strike before it was fired. We did what we should have done in the first place, which was to sweep through the village on foot. Go figure, we found nothing but women and children. I don't know how I could live with myself if we had done what I almost did. The point is, the time to set your moral compass is not when your best buddy gets shot, is not when your women get shot down. You will be morally challenged when you are least emotionally prepared to deal with it. Every day since, I have thought about who I am. I got my platoon together that day and apologized to them for almost doing what I almost did. And then every day since then, I have just thought through what's going to happen today that might be a moral challenge, an ethical challenge. 99.9% of the time, the things I could think of never happened. But it got me into a routine of thinking about who I am so that when things that I hadn't thought about happened, I was able to take the two to three seconds, that's all it takes, the two to three seconds to think about, is this who I am, before executing? And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this remarkable speech, General Peter Pace, 
sharing stories from his life. I mean, these are confessionals of a sort. I mean, he was a hair trigger away from killing a whole lot of innocent people because he was just ticked off. And so setting your moral compass, we can all hear words of wisdom like that. And by the way, we all need a sergeant like that who just stares at us. And by the way, that sergeant was going up against a higher rank. He wasn't saying anything, but he was through his silence and through his stare. And we all have that opportunity with our bosses, with people we know and care about. More on leadership. General Peter Pace's stories here on Our American Stories. this is Our American Stories. We return to General Peter Pace's talk at Annapolis with 19-year-olds. And not many 19-year-olds are hearing this message, let alone having everything that's happening around them reinforcing this message. And where we left off, Peter Pace had just told a remarkable story about, well, a couple of stories actually about events that changed his life. And Of course, not all moral courage is about restraint. Sometimes it's about making the decision that's right for your subordinates, but possibly is hazardous to your career. Here's Pace telling a story from the 1980s when he was commanding about a 1,000 Marines. When I was Lieutenant Colonel Battalion Commander, my battalion was was afloat aboard ship. We were off the Philippines, and we got word that the U.S. Embassy wanted my Marines to come ashore and be part of a parade for President Marcos. The island on which they were going to have the parade was a known island of violence, a lot of insurgents. I said, okay, we can do this, but we're coming in with ammunition because I'm not going to have my mortars, my machine guns, my rifles, and most importantly, my Marines challenged while they're in this parade by insurgents. The word came back. They said, oh, no, you can't do that. You cannot march past President Marcos with ammunition. And my answer back was, okay, we're not going to march past President Marcos. This became a very, very sensitive subject. Messages going back and forth. And I refused to put my Marines ashore. We went back to Okinawa from whence we'd come aboard ship. And when I got off ship, I got word that the uh, division commander wanted to see me right away. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, lieutenant colonel, 16 years of service, four to go to retirement. Uh, Now what? What am I going to do next, right? (laughs) I was okay with my decision. But I didn't know whether or not the division commander was. So I walked in and report to him, Major General Glasgow. I walk in and report, and sir, Lieutenant Colonel Pace reporting is ordered. He looks at me and says, Pete, I'm proud of you. <laughs> I didn't know if it was going to be Pete, you're fired, or what it was going to be, okay? But it reinforced for me, again, 
I didn't do that lightly. I didn't do it glibly. I thought about it a lot, real hard. I mean, there's other times when I thought about things really hard and done it wrong. You owe yourself as a leader to think about things the best you can and get to the best clarity you can and then make your decision and live with it and be comfortable in your own skin. Being comfortable in your own skin, that's a tough one when you're making tough decisions like these with so many people's lives on the line. And of course, the higher up in rank one goes, the more complicated and consequential these decisions become. Pace then told the midshipman a story from when he was a one-star brigadier general in the early 1990s. I get a call from the Commandant of the Marine Corps saying, hey, uh, 1st Marine Division is going to go to Somalia. They don't have an assistant division commander. General Wilhelm is division commander. wants you as his deputy. Can you go? So I went, and we go ashore. The port of Mogadishu is really very small. We had three pre-positioned ships with the equipment and one small port that could take one ship at a time. So the ships are coming in and out and they're putting stuff on the, uh, on the uh, deck and, putting, and taking what they need. And because the port itself was so small, you couldn't leave stuff out. You had to put it all back. Whatever you didn't use, you put back on the ship. It went back out. The next ship came in. We're about to go attack a warlord's compound. He has T-55 tanks. Now, if T-55 tanks are significant if you're wearing nothing but your uniform, but kind of pieces of trash if you happen to have your nice M1A1 tank. And you can stand off and take shots with your M1A1 all day long and kill T-55s before they get anywhere near where they can shoot. So we're feeling pretty good about this. General Wilhelm sitting in one chair, and General Pace is sitting in the other chair, and we're being briefed, and all of a sudden, the captain, tank, company commander says, excuse me, the main gun, tank ammo, got sent back out to sea. This is the night before an attack. So I'm sitting there, and I always, I have kind of a strange sense of humor anyway. And I mean, it was dead silence, and you could just see General Wilhelm. His jaws were getting, I mean, you could tell he was about to go eat something. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I kind of smirked, and I said, we should do this without ammo. Put yourself in the warlord's position. Do you think that he thinks that we're stupid enough not to have ammo? <laughs> Wilhelm, who was, went from being totally pissed to being hysterical, says, you're right, but now that we've had our yucks, we're saying, okay, fair enough, this is going to work, but just in case he doesn't believe that we actually have ammo, you know, we need to make sure we've got Cobra gunships and all that stuff stacked up. So the ethical part of this was making sure we, in fact, protected PFC Pace, but the decision part of it was, we need to do this, and we can do this, and nobody would think we're that stupid. So we were that stupid, and we got away with it. Okay? <laughs> Having shared some personal stories from throughout his four decades in uniform, General Pace then gave these midshipmen some advice for their careers. Grow where you are planted. You're going to get a chance 
two plus years from now to put in your request for what you want to do next. Some of you are not going to get your first choice. The Marines and the sailors who are looking to you don't care whether it's your first choice or your 12th choice. They need you and they deserve from you that you be the best leader you can possibly be for them. I promise you, if you will ask for and fight for what you want in an assignment and then go do whatever you're told to do like it was your first choice, you will always get another great job as a follow-on job. Why? Because there are more great jobs than there are great people. You can drive yourself nuts worrying about what somebody two or three levels above you is doing that's not right. And there's not a darn thing you can do about that. So my recommendation to you is stay in your lane. And an officer's lane, in my opinion, is what he or she is responsible to do and an understanding of what your boss and their boss are doing and an understanding of what your first subordinate and their first subordinate are doing. If you will focus on that bandwidth and operate as best you can every day in an ethical, moral way with integrity, your, in the case of Marines, your 40 Marine platoon will very quickly become a 200-man company, will very quickly become a 1,000-man battalion because you're focused on the things that you are responsible for and over which you have some ability to have impact. And what great advice that applies to everything in life. Grow where you are planted, the general was telling these 19-year-olds. And there are more great jobs than great people. So true. Don't be in a rush. That was another one I loved. A great coach of mine said, don't be the boy in the rush. Stop rushing. And that's very little difference in that than grow where you are planted. Slow down, make the best of your situation, and learn right here. And by the way, one last story that would probably embarrass General Pace a bit. He's certainly not the sort to push this story himself. After his retirement ceremony at Fort Myer in Virginia on October 1st, 2007, General Pace went to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. By the way, we did too. We sent our Hillsdale students there. And you can go to our website. It was a special Memorial Day celebration. And they talked to folks in front of that memorial, one of the most beautiful memorials in all of Washington, D.C. But Pace went to that memorial, the striking black wall engraved with the names of 58,307 Americans who paid the ultimate price in Vietnam. And onto each three-by-five piece of paper, he pinned his four stars, metal representations of his rank, his career, and his code of honor. And again, each of these three-by-fives was for men who died in his platoon in Vietnam. On those cards, he wrote, These are yours, not mine, exclamation point, with love and respect. Your platoon leader, Pete Pace. And there you have it, Peter Pace's story, 
to the third class midshipmen at the U.S. Naval Academy. In a way, their stories too, all the fallen men's stories in Vietnam. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. You're about to hear one of the most remarkable stories, one of the most remarkable women, and how she triumphantly shined one of the clearest lights on one of the darkest moments in history. On May 10th, 1940, Adolf Hitler's Germany invaded the Netherlands overtaking the country in five days. On bombing raids, the German Luftwaffe dropped over 97 tons of explosives on the city of Rotterdam, forcing the Dutch to surrender. During the subsequent Nazi occupation, over 100,000 Dutch Jews were rounded up and taken to concentration camps. Few would survive. In the face of these horrors and at the threat of losing their own liberty, An elderly father and his two daughters risked everything to save the lives of these persecuted people. This is their true story, based on the testimony of the trio's only survivor. Her name is Corey Ten Boom. The youngest of four children, Corey was born in Holland, Holland in 1892 to Casper and Cornelia Ten Boom. Casper Ten Boom, or Holland's grand old man as he was known, was a devoted father and husband and a man of high moral character, very much respected by the local community. The Ten Boom home was a typical Dutch house. It was tall and narrow. The bottom floor served as the store for their family-run watch and clock shop. The floors above were their living quarters. The house, or baye as they called it, served them well when it was just two parents and four children. But when their elderly aunts moved in with them, they needed more space. So Father Ten Boom bought the house next door in order to bridge the houses together. But the problem was the floor levels didn't line up, and the addition had two floors while the Baye had three. Here's Pamela Rosewell Moore, Corey Ten Boom's close friend and companion. So you, it it fools me to this day, because you never quite know which landing you're on, which house you're in. The different levels made for a very odd house but it was a peculiarity that would play an important role in their clandestine work during World War II. Corey's life was a happy one. She learned many valuable and important lessons from her father. And when Corey finally fell in love, she fantasized deeply about a marvelous marriage, as many young women do. However, her heart was broken and her dreams were shattered when the young man showed up at her house for a visit with his fiance. 
somehow Corey's social standing did not meet with his mother's expectations. Here's Corey on that heartbreaking period. It was as if my heart was broken that moment. And after they had gone, I went straight to my uh, bedroom. And I said, Lord Jesus, I belong to you, lock, stock, and barrel. I surrender this part of my being that is wounded. Corey dedicated herself to the care of her aged live-in aunts. And with her sister Betsy, they nursed them until the time of their passing. The two sisters also worked with the youth in their city, hosting Bible studies. And Corey initiated a club for the mentally handicapped. She loved them dearly. Children, children, come, come. Have some cookies. Ah, yeah. (laughs) She wrote a book called Common Sense Not Needed, just a little pamphlet book about her work among those who weren't intellectually as able as others. They can do anything. And she taught them from the Bible. They can do anything. Tragedy struck in 1918 when their mother suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. While she remained bedridden, Betsy took on the housework, and Corey began helping in the watch shop, where the family began seeing Corey's keen business sense. Due to Corey's management skills, the family improved their financial situation. She became Holland's first licensed woman watchmaker. She went to Switzerland and did a a course in watchmaking and watch repair under the Swiss, who were, of course, the leaders, and came back and... uh, became the main helper to Father Timbal in his watch shop. Then, in 1921, Corey's mother passed away. Years went by, and though war was looming in Europe, it was but a shadow in the Netherlands. That is, until the unimaginable happened. Hitler's Germany invaded Holland on May 10th, 1940. Within weeks, life changed drastically for everyone in Holland. I will never forget that through these streets, and I saw tanks, and it was a real performance, this big, huge army going through the streets to make impression on us. And I can still remember these boots marching over the streets. beginning was not so terrible. We had only five days war, then we had to surrender, and it seemed that things were a little bit the same as before. The Nazis confiscated all radios in the Netherlands. They did not want anyone to have information about the war. Any other radios in the house? No, none. But the Ten Booms managed to keep one. They kept it hidden under one of the steps of stairs, and during the night, they would gather around their radio and listen to the news that came in from the BBC in London. They would also listen to the words of their queen, who at the beginning of the war sought refuge in London. By wireless from the BBC, Her Majesty the Queen of the Netherlands. Fellow Hollanders, the lights have gone out over free Holland. Where only two weeks ago there was a free nation of men and women brought up in the cherished tradition of Christian civilization, there is now the stillness of death. But they also listened to the speeches of Adolf Hitler. (laughs) 
but I heard her say a couple of times, it started out in a normal voice, and then the voice got more and more excited and higher and higher, and in the end it was the voice of a demon. It was the voice of a demon. When we come back, the life of Corey Temboom, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, The Life of Corey Ten Boom, continues. The Nazis had confiscated all the radios in the Netherlands, as we learned in the last segment, but the Ten Booms kept one for themselves. Let's pick up the story from there. After the German invasion of the Netherlands, the Nazis took further steps to consolidate their power. It began slowly, but the Nazi propaganda machine spewed out its poison. The Jews were forced to line up in order to receive a patch to be worn on their clothing. It was the identifying yellow star of David. A fed-up Father Tenboom waited in line to receive his star. You shouldn't be here. I've come for my star. They're for Jews. If we all had them, they wouldn't know the difference between a Gentile and a Jew. Go home. I will wear my star, and I won't take it off until God tells me to take it off. The God of Abraham and Isaac, and my God too. But quickly, Jewish stores were attacked, their houses raided, and eventually the Jews themselves were rounded up. An underground resistance to hide and protect Jews was quickly established. Dr. Heemstra. And the cause literally showed up on the Ten Boom's doorstep when a doctor arrived hiding a Jewish orphan baby under his coat. A local pastor who was visiting the Bay that day was unwilling to take any personal risk and refused to take care of the Jewish child. It is the law, and Christians must obey the law. Think what you are risking. For the sake of one Jewish baby. Good day, Temple. How can that man call himself a Christian? If a mouse lives in the cookie jar, that doesn't necessarily make him a cookie. Father Ten Boom stepped up. What will we do? Corey, we are meant to obey the law of the state if it does not go against a higher law of God. We will keep the child. Betsy and Corey rallied around their father's decision. He's beautiful. Corey's experience organizing youth groups would now earn a huge payout. Here's Corey. And once we heard that in a Jewish orphanage in Amsterdam, all the babies had to be killed because they were Jewish babies. When we heard that, our boy said, we will save them. 
and we will steal them. And they went to that orphanage and they stole all the hundred babies. <laughs> you will say, how is it possible? I will tell you a secret. You know, sometimes there came to us good Germans who were soldiers were in the army and they said we don't like to work any longer for Adolf Hitler we will not kill the Jewish people can you help us and I always said sure I will help you just come in it didn't take long for Jews to show up at the Bay desperately looking for refuge mothers with children young people business owners professors the elderly all facing the threat of incarceration because they were Jews. No one was turned away. They had to have extra Russian cards, and the, the Russian cards weren't easy to come by. The government was supplying them with food for three people, and of course there are a lot more people in the house than that. Soon the Baye was filled with Jews, and due to food shortages and the lack of ration cards which couldn't be counterfeited, Corey took a huge risk. All Jews, Mr. Konstra. She approached Fred Konstra and his wife. All Russian cards are checked. Corey had taught Konstra's mentally handicapped daughter in her church group. I should not have asked you. Since Nazi occupation, Konstra had been working as a ration card distributor in the food office. How many cards do you need? Corey boldly asked for 100 ration cards. 100? And Konstra courageously agreed to supply them to Corey. I know someone who might do it. His desperate wife stormed out knowing that he had to account for each card to his Nazi supervisor. So, he faked a robbery. I'd have to be tied and gagged. Asking a close friend to beat him up to make his alibi seem more convincing. It worked. We have a secret code. Fearing their telephone was tapped, the Ten Booms devised a secret code in order to identify whether the Jew was a male or female. I have a woman's watch that needs repair. That meant that a Jew seeking a hiding place would be arriving. They also used a red triangular-shaped sign in their front window to let the new arrivals know whether it was safe to come inside. When the plain backside of the sign was displayed, Professor, they knew to stay away. Will you do us the honor of asking the blessing? In order to keep the housebound guests occupied, the Ten Booms created work schedules and activities. They also held nightly Bible studies. So often it was just like one big family together, you know, not thinking of being, must have been living sort of in the balance of the real life they were actually living, where they had enough to eat and were looking after each other and loved each other and the knowledge that uh, one day the Nazis might come. But things continued to get more difficult. Corey's nephews and even her sister Nolly were arrested and imprisoned. But fortunately, they were released. What do you do if the Gestapo comes? The possibility of a raid on the Baye was very real. If one did occur, there was no place for the Jews to hide. You will have a visitor. Something had to be done. There was a famous architect who made these hiding places. 
And that was his part in the underground work, very important. I will never forget that he came upstairs and through the whole house to see where it was possible. And because this room was the highest of the house, he chose this, my tiny bedroom. I do. Perfect. The wall was made of brick, and that was the secret of the hiding place. When they started to knock at it, it was a solid, so they didn't find it. They had to creep into this open of the hiding place, and then when they were in it, they could close the backside of the closet so that you couldn't see there was an opening. A non-privileged Jew will be unable to show his face in the Netherlands. For two eventful years, the Lord allowed us to help hundreds of people escape the Nazi death camps. Until February 28, 1944. Once there came a man to me and said, will you save my wife? It's my wife. She is arrested. She's been arrested. She has saved Jewish people, and now she is in a police station. And there is one policeman who will run the risk to set her free if we pay him 600 guilders, but I have no money. She'll need a place to hide. That man was a betrayer. Around the side door. Come on. The sick Cory agreed to help the man, and then retired to her room. At five o'clock, the doorbell sounded. Yes. I need the money. Now. Something didn't seem right to Betsy. He pushed the hidden buzzer to alert the house and began stalling. He finally opened the door only to be pushed back by the storming Nazi Gestapo. Lori was awakened when the Jews burst into her room and crawled into the hiding place. The unusual layout of the Beye slowed down the Nazis. By the time they got to her room, Cory was pretending to sleep. The Gestapo ripped her out of her bed. Help! Where are the Jews? What Jews? Help! Lord Jesus, help me! Little did the Nazis know that the Jews were just feet away. Where are the Jews? Listening to the horror of Corey being beaten as they sat protected in their hiding place. The Nazis began tearing the house apart, but had no success finding the Jews. As the ten booms were led to an awaiting truck, Corey was horrified to see Betsy and her nephew also bruised and bleeding. God is with us. As Father Ten Boom struggled to get into the truck, a Nazi officer softened for a moment. Boom. Give me your word, you will behave yourself, and you can die in your bed, old man, where you belong. If I stay behind, I will open my door And when we come back, the story of Corey Ten Boom continues right after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Corey Ten Boom. She and her family being hauled off from their home by the Nazis. As the truck drove off, Close it up. Corey was shocked to see hundreds of people lined up along the sidewalk. See the house. Corey knew that they had come, regardless of the personal risk, to show their support for the Ten Booms, who did nothing more than offer kindness and protection to innocent human beings who were being hunted down like wild animals. They were taken from the police station to the prison in Scheveningen on the Dutch coast. And it was there that Father and Betsy and Corey, at least Betsy and Corey, saw their father for the last time. They were lined up with their noses to the wall, and Father Tembom quoted Psalm 91.1, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And they didn't see him again. God be with you, Papa! Weeks later, on her 52nd birthday, Corey received a letter from her sister, Nolly, notifying her of their father's death. But for Corey, there was peace in this travesty. She recalled something that happened at the Baye a long time ago. In this house, in 1844, there happened something. A minister said to my grandfather, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It is written in the Bible. My grandfather had never thought about it, but he saw that it was a commandment in the Bible, and he invited his friends, and they came in this house every week and had a prayer meeting for the Jews. I remember that when Father was warned by his friends, and they said, don't have always Jewish people in that house. It will end up in prison for you. And Father said, I'm too old for prison life. But when that will happen, it will be an honor to me to give my life for God's ancient people. And that's what really happened. While the letter bore difficult news, it also bore news of great hope. It's safe now. Corey noticed that the handwritten address on the envelope seemed to be sloping towards the stamp. Peeled it off and used the code word for the Jewish people, and it said in Dutch, Alle horloges zijn veilig. All the, the watches are safe. While in prison, Corey was interrogated repeatedly by Nazi Lieutenant Roms. Would you mind telling me where you got these extra Russian cards? Then one day, he stopped asking specific questions about the underground, sat back, and looked Corey in the eyes. Will you tell me about your other activities? Corey eagerly sat up straight in the armchair. Now she had something to talk about. My sister and I held Bible classes until such meetings were forbidden. And we worked with retarded children. How? Excuse me? How would you work with them? We taught them about God. <coughs> what a waste. If you wanted converts, surely one normal person is worth all the halfwits in the world. Corey smiled. Here's what the subsequent exchange sounded like. I would like to tell you the truth, if I may, Lieutenant. Well, of course. Go right ahead. The officer leaned forward in his chair and picked up a pencil. Corey took a deep breath. You and I are human, and we look on the outside of a person. 
But God looks at a person's heart. He knows whether there is light or darkness inside the person. And that is what is important to him. Lieutenant Roms did not say anything. So Corey went on. Some people have great darkness in their hearts. Are you one of those people, Lieutenant? Today's session is over. To her surprise, the following morning, a guard brought her back to Lieutenant Roms. Here's Corey on what happened next. And so it happened that suddenly he showed me papers found in my house. And to my horror, I saw names, addresses, and particulars that could mean not only my death sentence, but the death sentence of my family and friends who were in prison. The judge said, can you explain these papers? I said, no, I can't. And I felt terrible, terrible unhappy. But he knew better than I how dangerous the papers were. And he turned, he opened the door of the stove, and threw all the papers into the flames. My, how happy I was that moment. (laughs) If you had told me that I could be 100% happy when I was in a prison in the hands of an enemy, I should never have believed that. But when I saw these flames destroy these horrible papers, it was as if for the first time I understood Colossians 2.14 where it's written that Jesus has taken the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, has taken them out of the way and nailed them at the cross. After spending nearly three months in solitary confinement, Corey, along with other prisoners, were taken to an awaiting train. And there, to her great delight and relief, she caught a glimpse of her sister Betsy, who was helping other prisoners board a train. Corey pushed her way through prisoners, calling out her sister's name. Finally, the two sisters were reunited. But as the doors of the train closed, they had no idea where they were going. Days later, the train finally came to a stop at a Nazi concentration camp in the Netherlands. But their stay was only temporary. And then came D-Day, the 6th of June, when the Germans apparently had received knowledge that there was going to be movement of troops and decided to empty their concentration camp in the Netherlands. And then they moved on to the real home. Ravensbrück. The most notorious extermination camp for women, located in northern Germany. It was also a training center for female SS guards. The SS was Hitler's paramilitary organization, and these female guards were infamously inhumane and cruel. Upon arrival, Corey and Betsy were forced to strip naked for Nazi guard inspection. Up until this point, Corey had managed to hide her smuggled Bible from the Nazi soldiers. So while waiting in line, she began to pray. Now open up a way for us to get it through the gates of hell. But without clothes for cover, she was doomed. It's in God's hands now. When it was her turn to be searched, the guards got distracted by another prisoner. And Corey walked right through inspection. Please! Life! They were thrown into barracks 28. They discovered that it was known to have so many fleas that the guards just put the food down inside the door. 
and left them to it. When I was surrounded by people who had had a training in cruelties, and the Bible was forbidden, but we had every day twice a Bible message in that room where we were together in a concentration camp with 700 prisoners. And of course, she learned that um, there was a crematorium. It was obvious, it was seen, and that she didn't know whether she'd be the next person to go into it. Women were taken away very often, being told they were going to have a shower, so they got all happy. Uh, but when they got there, water didn't come out of the shower, but gas. So that got around. So when the people came in to say, give out the names of the people, you're going to have a shower. They didn't know it might be a shower, but possibly it would end in the crematorium. Betsy's health was declining. And because she was not able to work as fast as the guards demanded, she was beaten savagely. Oh, Jesus. Show me how to live in this place. And when we come back, the final segment in this hour-long look at the life of Corey Ten Boom. This is Our American Stories. Turn to the final segment of the life, this extraordinary life, the life of Corey Ten Boom. At night, Betsy and Corey held Bible studies in their barracks. In all circumstances. On one such night, they were challenged by one of their fellow prisoners. And to the mindless, the word sounds so comforting. But you must believe you are God smells that stench from those chimneys and refuses to do anything. All I can say is that the same God you are accusing came and lived in the midst of our world. He was beaten and he was mocked and he died on a cross and he did it for love for us. And why do you think you, a God of love, sent you here? To obey him. If you know him, you don't have to know why. While Betsy's faith soared under all this hardship, Corey's was breaking. Do you think I haven't prayed? But I hate them. I hate every Nazi in this place. No hate, Corey. No hate. To Corey's consternation, Betsy pitied the Nazis. Even the traitor back home who reported the ten booms to the Nazi officials. Forgive them, for Jesus' sake. As their situation in the extermination camp got worse, Betsy began experiencing visions of a brighter future. 
Betsy said, the Lord has told me that we are going to have a house in the Netherlands and it's beautiful, Corrie, I've seen it. The Lord showed it to me. It was a very big house of people who've suffered a lot psychologically in the war. We'll take them in, we'll look after them and we'll have a, we'll have a garden for them. They can plant flowers. It will be so good for them. You know, Corrie. Betsy also shared another assurance she received from God. We're going to be free. Before the new year, both of us. Corey clung to this promise with all her heart. You'll see. Until just a few days later, on December 16th, 1944, Betsy died. I'm not going to die, Corey. Her body was placed in a rundown latrine. Betsy. Next to the others who had recently passed. Corey, you must look. Otherwise, you'll never know. It was in this place where Corey said her goodbyes. She's beautiful. Corey wondered whether Betsy's last words regarding their release was a result of delirium. Then, while standing for roll call one evening on December 28, 1944, Corey received this announcement. The following prisoners will come forward and stand by for selection and pickup. Seven, eight, nine, nine, two... Died last night. Six, six, seven, three, zero. Corey. Slowly, she stepped out from the ranks. Assuming she would never return, she handed her precious Bible to a prisoner and desperately declared, God is with you. Obediently, she followed the SS guard, but not to the work fields or the trucks. Or the gas chamber. Ten bomb, Cornelia. Corey was taken into an office. Sentence completed. 21st, 1244. Without any explanation, Corey was given a pair of undersized shoes, an old dress, a hat, a coat, and her release papers. Soon, she was walking past the tower guards with their vicious attack dogs past the electrified barbed wire fences and stood at the extermination camp gates. As she passed the gates, Betsy's words came to her mind. You know, Corey, we're going to be free before the new year. We will. I know it. Years later, Corey would find out just how miraculous her release was. Years later, it was learned my release came through a clerical error, what some might call a mistake. Not long after I was set free, women my age were put to death. Corey wandered through the city for days. Eventually, she made her way back to Holland. Then, on May 1st, 1945, News quickly buzzed through Holland that Adolf Hitler committed suicide in a bunker in Berlin. Seven days later, the bells of St. Bavo Church rang out. The Nazis surrendered. Holland was free. Much of what Betsy told Corey had come to pass. There was more that Betsy had shared with her. They won't need concentration camps after the war, Corey. They won't need them at all, and we'll find one. And we'll clean it and we'll paint it. On the outside, it'll be lovely 
green like flowers coming up in the spring and we'll look after them and we'll stay with them. Corey said, will this be after, will we do have the house first or will this be the first thing we do? Will we go to Germany? Oh no, we'll have the house first and then we'll be in the, in the new concentration camp which will be turned into a nice home. The house was indeed provided in Holland. There, to the consternation of the locals, Corey took in the ostracized Dutch who had collaborated with the Nazis. She did her best to rehabilitate them and help them face their mistakes and be reintegrated into society. Then, Corey directed her attention onto the second part of Betsy's vision, Germany. After some time, the German authorities came to her and they said, we want to tell you that we've got a building that we might, you might think suitable. It's a concentration camp in Darmstadt. So she traveled there and so she didn't go to a hotel or somewhere. She stayed with them and could hear all the clattering and the talking going on and ministered with them for a long time. The third part of Betsy's vision was told to Corey at Ravensbrück. We must tell people that no pit is so deep that he is not deeper still. They will believe us because we were here. That love was tested during one of her early speaking engagements. Corrie was speaking in a church in Germany at the end of the 40s, and she was in front of a group of people who'd gathered there. And at the back of the group, she saw a man who wouldn't look into her eyes. And suddenly, and with a bit of a shock, she recognized him as a guard from Ravensbrück who had been particularly cruel to her sister Betsy. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, writes Corey. He said, How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, says Corey. And I, who had preached so often to the people the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. There was hatred and bitterness in my heart. I remembered how my dying sister had suffered through the cruelties of that man. But I know from the Bible that hatred means murder in God's eyes. And I said, oh, Father, forgive me in Jesus' name my hatred. And the Lord took it away. And I said, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, that your love in me is victorious over my hatred. And that moment my hatred disappeared and I said, Brother, give me your hand. I have forgiven you all. Corey said that when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. For over 30 years, Corey Ten Boom crisscrossed the globe sharing his story of faith on every continent. Then, on February 28, 1977, exactly 33 years to the day that the Ten Boom family was taken away by the Gestapo, the 85-year-old Corey immigrated to Orange County, California. She put away her passport, unpacked her suitcase for the last time, declaring emphatically that it was all right because the Lord had promised her that she would write books and produce five films, that she would reach more people than she could ever hope to find face-to-face. In 1978, she suffered two strokes, 
The first, rendering her unable to speak, and the second, resulting in paralysis. She died on her 91st birthday on April 15, 1983, after a third stroke. She is buried in Los Angeles, California. Her gravestone reads, Corey Ten Boom, 1892-1983. Jesus is Victor. Yes, I am Corey Ten Boom. I promised my sister I would tell it. And I tell you. What a story. And it all ties back to America at the end of Corey Ten Boom's life. And even if it didn't, we would have still told this story. Because in the end, it was American GIs, Canadians, and Australians liberating those camps. And always what happened in Europe, we'll talk about here on Our American Stories in the 1940s. Corey Ten Boom, great work, Greg, great work, Faith. What a life remembered here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 